Hey there, uh, welcome to Comic Syllabus, where we read widely and dig deep in the worlds of comics and graphic novels. Um, I'm Paul, and I'm an English teacher and a comics uh, reader, and here to look at this week's Polybag segment, where we talk about new comics that are out on the uh, date of June 30th, um, 2021, at uh, your comic book shops. Um, we're part of the MultiversityComics.com network of podcasts, where you can uh, find reviews and previews and interviews and um, shampoos and uh, strikethroughs and parlez-vous. <laughs> uh, if you appreciate this kind of look at comics and graphic novels, please do subscribe and follow um, podcast um, and get the word out. Um, connect with me. Let me know. Um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all those are possible ways to connect. And uh, if you're seeing this video show, then um, video segment, then you've already caught on to how you can catch these videos where I don't do a lot of fancy stuff. I do just want to show some covers and pages and talk about this very visual medium. If you are listening to the audio only podcast, that's cool too. Hope you're enjoying it. And uh, anyway, to find out about any of that, just check out the links in the show notes. All right. Um, for Polybagged uh, this week, June 30th, um, we're going to talk about Usagi Yojimbo, uh, the Dragon Bellows Conspiracy number one. Um, made in Korea number two from Image Comics. Sorry, Usagi Yojimbo from IDW, of course. And uh, Monstrous number 35 from Image. And then Crossover number seven, also from Image. We're pretty image heavy this week. Um, but uh, we'll mention in the honorable mentions at the end uh, some titles coming out from other publishers as well. Uh, I want to start with Usagi. Um, and uh, fans of, of Usagi like me... Um, have a lot to be excited about this month because the Dragon Bellas Conspiracy is a classic. It's one of the first major Usagi Yojimbo arcs in the entire run of Stan Sakai's, you know, um, single creator long-running um, series that has now moved through a, a variety of publishers and I love the way that IDW has made the most of um, uh, Sakai's gifts and stories. In, um, in their time as publisher of Usagi. Um, it was originally published, this story, in um, issues 13 through 19 of the very first volume of Usagi Yojimbo, and then it was republished in the uh, Fanographics Collections um, book four, um, which was titled The Dragon Bellow Conspiracy. So six issue story, and it was really the first kind of, uh, you know, uh, grand tale of this length in Usagi's long run. So this was in the late, I think maybe the mid to late 90s that this originally came out. What IDW has been doing is has been representing the run of Sakai's uh, legendary work in color. Um, there were those of us <laughs> uh, devotees who felt like there was a kind of sacrilege in taking um, Sakai's masterful black and white work um, uh, absent even mostly of gray washes and things like that and then infusing them with color but I think a lot of people felt the same about things like Jeff Smith's bone or other things that were originally published in color but in fact I think it's actually very savvy because I think just like when bone became reprinted in color it also became packaged for a new audience in a way, I think what IDW is doing is removing at least one barrier for some readers, particularly of younger readers. And I think it's especially interesting to do that with Usagi Yojimbo because um, 
in a way, we have now in the U.S. Um, a generation of readers who are actually more attracted to manga than to American comics, oftentimes. And manga has conditioned them to actually to, to read and quite be able to enjoy, you know, um, uh, uh, black and white comics or comics that are mostly, um, you know, with screen tones and things like that. Um, however, I think uh, as Bone and other kinds of uh, graphic novels have also been really successful with young audiences and a YA readership. Um, I think Usagi Yojimbo can appeal in that way. And so packaging the stories, putting color on them, um, uh, Patterson, the colorist in this, in this issue, um, is, is, a, is a way to represent Sakai's classic work um, in, a, in a, you know, kind of a bright and attractive way. And I think it's a smart move. Um, this story, as I said, is, is one of those classics. In fact, when people ask, where do I start with Usagi? The Dragon Bellows Conspiracy is often a place that um, people recommend you to, to go. And, um, and one of the reasons is because this story really demonstrates Sakai's kind of continual um, playfulness and variety with storytelling, you know, with like non-linear forms of storytelling. Um, you know, Sakai is very much um, like our Kurosawa, you know, a, a, an auteur who does things with the medium and has done such a long run and has so much output with Usagi that despite having repeated characters and settings and sometimes situations, Sakai is always doing something new, always full of surprises and um, and exploring and experimenting. And so even very early on, you see kind of the, the non-linear storytelling. Um, in this six issue series, we're introduced to Tomo Ame, a character who comes back again later on. You see her right here on this sample page in the very opening of the book. Um, you will, we also meet Jen the Rhino. Jen is also a repeated character as, a, as well as Zatogino, who's a pig who has a sort of a false nose um, or a, uh, what do you call it? Anyway, a nose that's on a string. Um, and this, this sixth issue is, is, you know, it really feels novelistic. It has this sense of a dramatic epic going on and it starts kind of with this new character um which you know uh sakai had already done in a few previous issues of of usagi ojimbo but to take this the focus off of usagi becomes a repeated um tool for him to expand the storytelling range and so rather than starting with usagi in this story we actually begin with tomo who is sent to um kind of a rival lord's palace she is sort of the um the both emissary ambassador and also sort of like the lead council and military leader for another lord and she's sent to this lord tamakuro's palace to investigate what seems like it could be a kind of a, a rival faction amassing power which turns out to be the case of course all this happening after the fall of the i think it's a shogun or the uh <laughs> the the sort of military figurehead for whom usagi uh, was once um you know loyal and um and so early on you know this story really kind of gets to tell a, a, a tale of a kind of scope and a kind of length and um and there's just um kind of a lot of intrigue woven into the motivations behind different characters opportunities for you know betrayal and and, and unearthing mysteries um this preview page shows actually that there's a way that um, as the story is told, 
um, Sakai will use flashback. And so you see in the very last panel of this page, Tomo starts to have a flashback while being attacked and, and knocked off her horse. And those flashbacks really just show the sense of long and wide history that go into these stories. You know, these characters, not just Usagi, but every character that's met really has a part of, you know, a part to play in this grander tale of feudal Japan um, uh, with animals. <laughs> Anthropomorphic feudal Japan that, that Sakai, you know, sort of weaves over time into this long tapestry. And, you know, Usagi's always had this gift of you can read an arc, a story, sometimes often even just a single issue and have no background knowledge about the the story um, and everything gets filled in for you along the way. Um, and yet, if you have read it all, it does actually really repay seeing a character again and knowing a little bit about the prior relationship between Usagi and this character. However, an aspect of Usagi as a character and many characters within this world is that there's a you know there are codes of honor by which they live which actually supersede any kind of prior you know um mere loyalty let's say or mere familiarity or mere friendship and so that that kind of code of honor um uh, guides the the actions the, the morality of the stories in a way that makes them not so dependent on you having known the backstory and that gets used interestingly here because Tomo and Usagi do have a prior relationship but we haven't seen it when this book starts so um, you know all of this I think um, exemplifies something that Sakai in his humility I think would be really understated about or at least has been in the interviews that I've seen that I've read that he doesn't he necessarily didn't necessarily approach this with like oh i'm gonna do 30 years of this you know massive uh, expansive story but really piece by piece as he combined research with his own kind of narrative gifts um combined sort of knowledge and and learning about um japanese history and um and also storytelling that he this world and these histories became deeper and deeper for him in the world of usagi and these characters um, comicsdom is basically divided into two factions, Usagi fans and not yet Usagi fans, as I like to say. And, you know, oftentimes the, the Usagi fans talk about what is the, a good entry point for a, a non-Usagi, not yet Usagi fan, um, not yet Stan Sakai fan. And it's hard for me to think of a better one. So, um, so check out, um, Dragon Bellows Conspiracy, number one, um, you know, props to IDW for sort of putting this out in a way that invites um, new fans to part to participate partake and enjoy also this week I think there is a, a Usagi chibi book that um, looks a lot of fun I haven't gotten it yet I think it's it's uh, still still on its way to me so maybe one day I'll, I'll check that out as well as I'd love to do an archival revival episode about the the big grass cutter volume I just got last year um, Let's go on to our next book, um, which is Made in Korea number two um, from Image Comics. Now, this came out last month and I, and I almost kind of overlooked it. And um, I don't know, I think it was that um, artist George Shaw, who has this very kind of indie style, um, a little closer to like an underground cartoonist than the sort of off the beaten track style of image books, although these days it, you know, is there an image style? <laughs> no, there's not. There's a lot of styles. Um, but I think George Shaw's art 
had a way that it um it's it felt to me like something that might be better read collected um i was wrong about that i really liked the first issue and uh jeremy holt the writer who is asian american um you know and shaw of course team creative team along with them i think it might be adam wallet is the letter um they write uh this this story as a future like a near future sci-fi world where infertility and um and ai kind of meet so that um couples who aren't able to have children are able to um order uh what, what they call proxies which are basically you know proxy children that are tech made into children and the story which kind of gets clarified here in issue two um is that we have in in korea there's like a rogue engineer who wants to test out some kind of off-limits ai or ai deemed you know like past the constraints the self-imposed constraints that they want to put on these um on these robots or whatever you want to call them and um and so he puts this code into this this kind of you know this level of ai into a, a child who eventually gets adopted by an american couple and so the engineer who's slightly kooky you can see him here um and also sneaky is discovered and he's fired and so in this issue he goes off in search of his of the proxy who carries the code snuck into uh one of these um one of these children and meanwhile as we saw in issue one um there's a pair of adoptive parents in the u.s who who've adopted this child and in this issue we see that they find their child to be precociously intelligent and she's read the whole library you know and she knows everything but she's hungry for curious for says isn't it appropriate now now for me as a child to have to go to school and to start building social relationships uh nothing good can come out of a kid going to school <laughs> i tell you that as a teacher um but i think that this um curiosity for social interaction you know where um this uh ai proxy child has absorbed all the sort of intellectual knowledge that there is but knows that there is a whole realm of social and emotional um you know factors and longings um those questions are really very heightened when we think about ai not just as like abstract robots but as these surrogate children and then the obligations that we start to feel toward them as the parents in this story feel and all of that comes to the fore so the premise the setup to me is super intriguing as far as these questions about um parenting about technology about about artificial intelligence uh, what makes us human um and of course the kid goes to school and without spoiling too much yeah, it's just never never good <laughs> never good when kids go to school um i i think i i i overlooked um made in korea when issue one came out to some extent and uh, i need to rec rectify that mistake and i definitely encourage you to check out um made in korea oh i forgot to show this is the another sample page where we see the uh adoptive parents and um and the, the relationship they have um so yeah written by jeremy holt and art by george shell um, from image comics uh, that brings us to our third book which is monstrous number 35 and it, okay i begin with a confession uh, since monstrous started in 2015 it has sometimes either been one of my top books and these two um sana takeda artist and marjorie lu uh, writer some of my top creators or they fall out of the list altogether <laughs> 
<laughs> just I noticed that. In fact, um, I'm gonna talk about the Eisners in an upcoming episode. Um, I think it's kind of that way with the Eisners too. They're either like really on the forefront of Eisner attention or off the list altogether. And and I think a lot of it has to do with just publication schedule and whether it's out there. But for me, it depends on whether or not I remember what's going on in the story. <laughs> because every time I read it, I love the story. And here at issue 35, we are really mounting towards something epic and world changing and climactic. This is not sort of um, planned, you know, off the off the cuff, off the seat of the pants. This has been building towards the story since the beginning. And um, and, I, and I think it's awesome. Um, and yet <laughs> I I never entirely remember what's going on. This is one of those books that I, I really enjoy while I'm reading it. But sometimes when I read the next issue, I'll read the the um, summary of the last issue and I'll go, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> and and really, it's no shortcoming of Lou or Takeda's storytelling. It's just my ability to sort of keep the story in my head over the months and years that it's been uh, ex expanding and unfolding. So, you know, now here we are in, in, in issue 35, which is maybe volume I don't know seven maybe um and i know we're heading i think like you know you can feel that you're heading toward the climax and an ending um i guess the other feeling i have about this story being as, as expansive as it is as you can kind of see again in this free preview page where we're this is a little bit of a flashback but it's it's really kind of unveiling all of the um the story leading up to this war between humans and and the Cumanes and the Arcanics and all these different, you know, races or segments that we've, we've seen in the story. Um, I guess uh, another fear that I have is that the story was really too far before its time, which is, again, no critique of the book itself, but really of, of where we are as a comics um, readership and as a community. In fact, I, I thought that after it, when Monsters first came out, you know, I was like, this is where image is heading or this is where publishers are heading where more and more stories that had these kinds of elements you know non-white non-cis male creators right and, and and this kind of fantasy that thrives in in that that is thriving right now in fiction and you look at fiction and the kinds of um writers that are producing fantasy that um you know is honestly better than um than game of thrones you know and and sometimes gets mistakenly categorized as ya but is actually super thoughtful and i you know um in fact i, I believe in its first year monstrous was maybe nominated for and submitted for one of the um younger reader categories maybe for teens or something like that but i was like what <laughs> it's like f-bombs and pretty graphic violence and stuff like that um but actually the point about that is it's, this is adult entertainment it really kind of you know it tackles this real possibility of like a matriarchal world and um warfare and colonization and the kinds of trauma and 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 you know kind of uh impacts of of attempted genocide and things like that it's it's pretty heavy and pretty dark and it tackles all those in these very personal and kind of grand scale ways in this story world um but yeah it's it's big and so i can the confession here is that i sometimes read it and i just you know i honestly i reread i've reread volumes one and two a million times um and I, at one point i stopped trying to follow the thread and i decided that this is going to be a a grand rereading 
<laughs> when, from start to finish when it's all done. Um, but meanwhile, as I read individual issues, as I did when I read 35, I can tell, you know, I'm obviously reminded of things that are going on and mistakes and relationships. And um, I guess I'm just sad that series, uh, just to complete the circle on what I was saying earlier, that series that have these, you know, similar ambitions, these longer epics and creators that stay with it for a long time who are not named Kirkman. Um, that they've kind of feel like they've petered out a little bit at um, at Image, you know. I mean, I think of Saga and how very halfway done it is, and how how much it meant to me, and how much how it's not here <laughs> right now. And um, and and all that reminds me that these books need our support, and it's why month to month I keep trying to and wanting to support Monstrous despite the kind of scale of the story. You know, and I felt a little bit meh about doing that about um, Hickman's and Dragota's East of West. I love love Nick Dragota. I think the story had some dynamics that were questionable for me. Um, I felt a little funny about Remender and Craig's Deadly Class. Again, loved the art, loved the stories and the characters, but I think some of the some of the um, some of the elements of it. You know, I just feel so differently about Monstrous, and I just want it. I want to support it so much. Um, but again, reading thirty five. I'm reminded that this story really is hitting these climactic levels as um, and, and here's some light spoilers here uh, Michael Halfwolf and, and the monster inside her uh, Zinn Howard Zinn the <laughs> Kippa the you know the fox girl hopefully this is bringing some bells for me to name these characters Tuya like they're all now fully grown and all of the warring between these different um, uh, you know Arcanics and, and etc it's all heating up and it's all being revealed and um, I can't remember any of what transpired in roughly issues 13 through 30 of this epic story. But, you know, again, all the more reason to keep supporting this book for that for that grand reread. I mean, just look at these pages. They are beautiful. And, you know, the lengthy, the kind of long recap pages do help. And I, and I get re-immersed in the epic and the developing drama. And so I, I don't want to give away more or too much. But there's these there are various twists and turns. In 34, some pretty heavy stuff happened. In in this issue, it not only gets uh, you know expanded even more, but then there's a twist to that. Um, there's a lot of culmination of all the stuff that's been laid since issue one. And I just think this series, man, is just what an achievement. I mean, every time I look at Sana Takeda's art on this, I just feel like I can't believe I'm reading this uh, as a comic book, right? And certain periods of time, every month you know that we're treated to this incredible art and world building um and i'm just sad that more books like monstrous haven't come in its wake um if i'm wrong about that and i'm just overlooking some things you know you know hit me up in the in the social media feed or whatever and and tell me what if you love monstrous and there's other things that i should be reading like it but i just feel like there's there's been nothing like it it's been incredible and um so uh, like like the way that I'm trying to enjoy Steph Curry while we have Steph Curry in the, and and the wonder that is Steph Curry I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to enjoy Monstrous um, and I know eventually I'll be able to have a certain kind of enjoyment that comes from reading it start to finish but I think the enjoyment of month to month um, or month to three months seeing this title is is something special of a month to. Uh, and finally crossover number seven so this book has had a lot of hype um, and pretty big sales um, it was advertised and promised uh, as a vast crossover with lots of 
meta meta um, from Donny Cates and um, I was gonna say Ryan Stegman from Donny Cates and Jeff Moore no Jeff Shaw <laughs> this book um, uh, it was about comic book characters a cataclysmic event they've entered the, our real world and now several characters are trying to flee from some um, haters of these comic characters and they've all been sort of quarantined isolated into this kind of bubble and getting in and out of the bubble um, it's a fun story Donny Cates knows how to write a good yarn and uh, Shaw's art is pretty cool um, pretty great I think I'm not as as high on these creators as others have been um, uh, I like what they do it's it's fun super readable um, but uh, honestly when I heard about this idea of this book and that it would actually cross over a ton of characters from you know other creators and other publishers I had a little feeling and I don't know if maybe some old nerds like me feel this way a little bit of like why do you get to do this Donny Cates and Jeff Shaw <laughs> you know to me they're still sort of newish around the block um, but what I like and what I've come to respect is that for us also maybe slightly older nerds there's also this different enjoyment that comes when finally some of the reveals about who else is in these stories like um, a little bit of minor spoilers for the first you know five six issues you know Matt Kent characters and Mike Allred characters show up and as well as some some um, you know I, I, I'm not gonna give anything away um, but um, but also I think newer readers who are just Cates and Shaw kind of fans may feel a little bit like okay I think I've heard of that character I've read that book before but but I think it, it kind of repays you know um, readers who've been around for a little bit longer and who who can remember these kind of hot creator owned characters um, who get not only like a tip of the hat but really almost a kind of co-authorship or presence in this story and um, it's kind of like these guys having you know good friends who are comics legends onto their podcast <laughs> um, but I think actually what's so interesting and made issue seven um, you know just pop up to this list to the polybag list is that I think that idea, that sort of meta idea and the, the way that creators are brought into this um, and their creations really reaches a fulfillment here. As in issue six, our main characters, they kind of reach kind of a bit of a holding pattern, which allows this issue to kind of divert to a different thing, right? We, we kind of take the focus off of our main characters. And so this issue is drawn by a familiar set of guests, you know, Phil Hester and Andy Parks inking. Uh, and written by another familiar guest, a creator who was actually mentioned early in the run of this book, um, which is Chip Zdarsky. And the fascinating thing is that Zdarsky, who right, first made the scene as an artist on sex criminals and, then, and, and really kind of doing stunts at conventions, um, but now has really just shown and proven these incredible chops as a writer of Daredevil and Spider-Man, you know, and, and all these kinds of things. In, in this issue is reckoning in these pages of this very meta book um, about his 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 characters and and his creations and and it turns out and here's a spoiler a little bit for this for you know just the beginning of this issue the char the characters and creations he's reckoning with are not the, the creations in sex criminals or in Captara but chip Zdarsky himself 
who is, of course, um, a pen name for um, Stephen Murray. And so we have on this page here, Stephen Murray. And Stephen Murray has to reckon with Chip Zdarsky. And <laughs> I think it's really interesting because you're unpacking the actual uh, metatextuality of not only comic books and characters and the worlds and and so on entering like a, a kind of reality that should be our, that is our reality but also the way that creators and and for that matter fans are ourselves we ourselves are characters you know whether that's who we are on the outside and who we present to uh, an, an audience or a public or if that's in fact who we are on the inside that if there's like you know, it's that question of like, is Batman Batman or is Bruce Wayne Batman, you know, or which one's the real person, you know? And I think um, those kinds of questions about um, identity, characters that we play, um, characters that we create and portray and come to represent us, um, that's just all speculated about in a really interesting way as Steve Murray encounters Chip Zdarsky. Chip Zdarsky, who is the writer of this issue. Uh, so this book was, I think, mildly interesting for me and cool until now, where now it's just gotten very interesting. So um, really encourage you to check out Crossover um, and Crossover, especially issue seven. Um, and so this week, a lot of other things are out. Um, the puzzle box that is Department of Truth marches on. Um, White number one from Black, Black Mask is out. Um, I just found out that I need to work harder and try to get a copy of that. Day. It's, a, it's a really limited run. <laughs> it's hard to get even if you pre-ordered it. Um, we, only, we only find them when they're dead. Number seven from Boom uh, is a, it's a gorgeous book and I, I'm enjoying that. There's a new book from Vault called Barbaric. You can see the uh, cover down below there. And uh, I think that's a it's, it's a cool first issue with an interesting premise. Takes the whole barbarian premise, which I don't like, um, but turns it up into a different moral, uh, different moral center. So uh, I think it's kind of fun. Spectre Inspectors is on issue five, um, and that's a good one to keep up with. I love Beta Ray Bill, um, Daniel Warren Johnson's take on the character, and um, and really all of the um, interesting. Uh, psychological exploration that's going on there that's um, surprising <laughs> so issue four of that is out as well as Daredevil from the aforementioned Zdarsky and um, oh, is there a villain artist for Shadow there I'm not sure um, <laughs> the Jin Luen Yang written Shang-Chi um, number two of the ongoing is is also out and then DC has a lot of annuals um, the, including the Green Arrow 80th anniversary not including sorry this is a separate thing 80th anniversary, 100 page, super spectacular, which looks fun. Another kind of these anthologies of different creators taking um, a shot. Uh, that's my poly bag for this week. Um, tell me what you're reading and what you're interested in, what your thoughts are. Um, and uh, stick around this week or later in this audio episode if you're listening to the audio as I'll talk about um, uh, uh, Eisner books and as well, hopefully, um, to, to um, touch a little bit on Loki and some of the Loki I've been reading in conjunction with Disney Plus series. So, all right, let's keep reading.